Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no... You're free to do as much of those as you would like. God has brought us in our occasional study when Pastor Kaiser is uh, on vacation or doing some other things. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and we're at the fifth character trait of those in whom God's Holy Spirit is working, and that is kindness. General Robert E. Lee was once asked what he thought of a fellow officer in the Confederate Army. And this officer had, had made several derogatory remarks about General Lee. And so somebody said, what, what do you think of this guy? And General Lee said, well, he is a fine officer. And the man who asked the question was flabbergasted by this. And he said, but General Lee, have you heard what he says about you? And General Robert E. Lee said, I have. But you did not ask me what the man thinks of me, but what I think of him. I think I would be content to learn how to be kind family and friends. But General Lee exhibits that kindness of God's people to even those who mistreat them. And that's exactly what God's kindness is. It is His gracious ways toward his enemies. We're going to look at Romans 2, 1 to 5 this morning, because that's a place where God's kindness is clearly uh, taught to us. I have, um, because of the confusion over the, the sound system, because of the confusion over uh, how the Greek word gets translated, on your handouts, uh, it actually has the ESV text, and uh, we also have uh, these blue sheets. If any of the kids want those, we have blue um, children's sermon notes if, if any of them would like to follow along there. And on the white ones, on the white uh, adult sermon notes, there is the Romans 2, 1 to 5 in the English Standard Version, which I'm going to read from today, and I'll explain later the little issue on how, to get, how do you get these words translated out of the Greek into English, but... This is a better translation than any other. How about you? Can you guys, is it coming out over the speakers? Okay. All right. Let's stand and let me read God's word for us. I'm going to pray and we'll ask the God of kindness not only to teach us the meaning of this word, but to give us the fruit of kindness. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, God says to us, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or... Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Great Father and God of kindness, we delight this morning and our ears are encouraged and our hearts are pricked at the thought that there might be truly kindness to be found in the God of the universe. We confess that when we think about our sins and how cold our hearts are, how impenitent they are, we are filled with terror. And sometimes that terror drives us away from you because we do not know who you really are. Today, would you show us how kind you are and let that kindness drag us back to you in confession and repentance that we might find the forgiveness you promise. And Lord, not only give us forgiveness out of your kindness, but give us the fruit of kindness that we might minister grace to one another. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. I was listening to a tape this week, and in that tape, the author was describing a situation in which there was an, an alleged lack of kindness, particularly in the evangelical church, churches like ours. This author, who was being interviewed on the tape, he had noticed in his reading and research that in feminist literature, it always or almost always says that it's an obvious fact that men in evangelical Bible-believing churches are more abusive than those in liberal or uh, Roman Catholic or mainline churches. And the feminists have said this is a clear fact, and it's obvious fact because of this issue of patriarchy. Now, the, the man who heard this, he's actually Roman Catholic now, but he had uh, grown up in an evangelical church, and he said, he said, I knew that something was wrong there. And so he set out to discover what was going on and ended up doing all kinds of research and writing a book himself, and that's why he was interviewed on this uh, audio tape. And here's what he discovered. He found that men in evangelical churches are more strict and more willing to spank their children than men in liberal, mainline, and Catholic churches. He also found that these same men, on average, spend more time with their families. They offer more words of encouragement and praise to their children. And the thing that he pressed home was that he found they yell less <laughs> than men in churches where the Bible is not first and foremost in the congregation. And he found out, he said, why are they always accused of being abusive? And it was, he found out it was this. By definition, in all of these studies, if you ever spanked your children, you were abusing them. And so the question of kindness came up. Are fathers who occasionally spank their children automatically unkind? Well, I had that this week, but I also had, I was listening to NPR, and on Wednesday, Terry Gross uh, did a segment of Fresh Air, and she had interviewed a guy, and he was talking about his psychologist. And he said, oh, this psychologist is so good. And then 
He said, he was really the only one ever to help me. And then Terry Gross, and I'm sure she kicks herself now for asking this, but what she said was, well, that's interesting. What did he say that was so helpful? And the guy said, well, he just listened. <laughs> you know, he was always there to listen when I needed someone to talk to. And I felt so good when I left his office. <laughs> Are non-judgmental listeners the definition of kind? It turns out that kindness is a, is a fairly difficult topic to nail down and figure out exactly what does it mean. How do you define this word? It's not used in the Bible all that often, 10 or 12 times. And so some Bible teachers... The only definition they offer is a list of examples of kindness. Like Stephen Winward, who's written a, book, a whole book on the fruit of the Spirit, he said this. Here's his definition of kindness. To speak a word of encouragement, to give to someone in need, to lend to a neighbor, to telephone or write someone in sorrow, to visit the sick or aged, to befriend a lonely person, to lend a hand to a harassed friend, the, th there are a hundred and one little ways to be kind to others. So, do any and all acts of service automatically come from a mortifying work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers? And probably many of you have heard of the work of the Random Act of Kindness Foundation. There Mission statement is this, we inspire people to practice kindness and to pass it on to others. We provide free educational and community ideas, guidance, and other resources to kindness participants through our website, actsofkindness.org. So is God's supernatural empowerment of kindness in our lives demonstrated and marked by acts of randomness? What is kindness? I give you all of those examples to sensitize you to the possibility that we might each have in our minds an idea of kindness and we feel like we know if someone's being kind to us, right? Or you certainly know when someone's not being kind to you, right? <laughs> Everybody here can tell me examples of people that have not been kind to them. And yet I'd like to suggest that maybe we don't have really a biblical idea of what this word means as it's used in the Scripture. When God says that as the Holy Spirit works in you, this fruit is going to come out, this effect, what does that look like? Whether you call it Kindness or not, what does it look like? Well, let's begin where we do every week on this series. Let's embrace a biblical definition of kindness. The word, the Greek word in Galatians 5.22, where he lists out all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and then the fifth is kindness, as it's translated in most modern versions, the ESV, the NAS, the uh, New King James, the NIV, all of those versions translate it kindness. Sometimes if you have the Old King James, I think it's gentleness. But that Greek word there is the exact same Greek word that's in Romans 2, 4. And it appears twice in that verse. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, the New King James, I don't, I, I'm at a loss for why, but the exact same Greek word that's over in Galatians, which it translates kindness, here it translates goodness, and it's just enough to confuse uh, even the saints, I'm sure. And so, rather than go down that path, I just chose to use the ESV this morning because it gives the exact same English translation for the exact same Greek word, which I think is helpful. But listen, it doesn't matter which word you want to use, goodness, kindness, broccoli, uh, gentleness, whatever word you want to use, what we need to know is what God wants us to do, right? Who cares what English word it's put there? How does God want us to treat people? And I want to ask you to notice three aspects to biblical kindness this morning. Three aspects of biblical kindness as the word is used in Romans chapter 2. First, biblical kindness must convict of sin. Biblical kindness, the way the word is used here, what God wants in your life, there must be some conviction of sin. Probably some of you remember in the late 1970s, Thomas Harris published a book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Does anybody remember that book? Yeah, some of you remember that. Well, about the same time that book came out, Dr. John Gerstner was uh, presenting a lecture at the uh, Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And so as he stood up to to give his lecture, he held up the book, I'm okay, you're okay, and he said, let me tell you about my trip to Kashmir. We just got back a few weeks ago. Dr. Gerstner, uh, Gerstner had just gotten back with his wife a couple of weeks ago from Kashmir, and he wanted to tell you a story about that. He said, in, in Kashmir, if you go shopping, you have to go in a boat. So there's water everywhere. So his wife and he had been shopping, and they came back in their boat, and they pulled into the, to the little harbor area. And as they did, there was a little bump. And they didn't think much of it, but the owner of the boat, the guy who was driving the boat, began speaking this strange language and waving at him to get out of the boat and... Gerstner didn't know what was going on, but he knew he had been splashed a little with water as they got bumped. And so he, he says, I remember saying to my wife, honey, look at this guy. He's just going crazy over a little water. And he kept, Gerstner said, I kept shaking my leg and saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's no big deal. And the guy is waving frantically and talking and he can't understand the thing. And finally he says, it, no, okay. And Gerstner said his eyes were... So he thought, well, I better get out of the boat. So he gets out of the boat, helps his wife out of the boat, and as he does and turns around, the guy, um, his, the uh, owner of the boat, his grandson, like four or five-year-old grandson was with him, he, he literally just threw him up on the shore right into Gerstner's arms and jumps out of the boat himself. And just as he does, the boat is sucked underwater. What had happened when they got bumped, it had ripped a hole in the side of their little dinky boat. It had begun to take water, and there was this incredible fierce undertow in this place where they parked the boat. And as soon as it got down in the water, because the the thing was taking on water, the undertow sucked the boat all the way down. It went under another seven or eight boats and popped up like a cork on the other side of the harbor. Gerstner said, if I had stayed there one more minute, I would be dead. Because there's just nothing to do. It just sucked you down and then spit you out later. The point Gerstner made, he said, which is kind? I'm okay, you're okay? Or, it no okay. (laughs) God's kindness, according to verse 4, is meant to lead us 
to repentance. And if it's going to lead us to escape the boat of sin and the drowning which is surely to follow, we should expect the kindness of God to honestly convict us of our sins. And isn't that just what the Scriptures do? Here in Romans chapter 2, right here in our just our little paragraph, we see in verse 1, he says, we have no excuse. None of us have any excuse. And, and in fact, we all condemn ourselves because we all, in our own minds, when someone treats us with a little bit of unkindness, we say, hey, unkind. But yet we do the exact same thing to others. So we have this conscience, which is like a giant radar, and it's aware of every other sin everybody else commits. <laughs> and we like to point those out, but it does not see them in ourselves. And in verse 2, he says, God rightly judges us for every sin we commit. In verse 5, it talks about the wrath that is to come. And this is not the only place in Romans. Over in verse 1, it says God's wrath is being revealed against our unrighteous acts. And in verse 3, it says no one is righteous. No, not one. Later on in the book, he'll talk about how we are slaves to sin. We're ungodly. We're dead in our sin. God's kindness always includes conviction. Now, of course, many people today consider conviction absolutely contrary to kindness. By definition, like this study that the man did from the first illustration. All evangelical men are abusive because by definition, they do things that have been predefined as abusive. And so some people say today, if there's any conviction of sin, if you ever tell me anything I do wrong... If you say anything to me other than, I'm okay, you're okay, you're by definition not kind. But that's not what God says. God says that if we are kind, we're willing to tell people it, no, okay. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, the kindest friends you have are the ones who will convict you of sin. So this morning, I would plead with you first to ask yourself, when I have had friends that were kind enough to come to me and say, hey, have you considered this? I think there's something wrong in your life. Have you pushed them away? Have you communicated them in words and facial expression and in actions? I want nothing to do with any kind of kindness that convicts me, that has any kind of wrong that I'm doing. See, if we're going to be filled with the fruit of kindness, we're going to have to have friends who are kind to us, friends who will convict us of our sin. That's the first part. Biblical kindness must include conviction of sin. There's a second aspect, though. Biblical kindness must be compassionate. It must have conviction, but it must also be compassionate in suffering. Now, I, you know, some of you know me probably more than I would like you to know, and you're probably thinking right now, you know, Pastor Durham has that first part down, but he's not so good at the second. <laughs> and I'll admit, I much more like that first part than I do the second part. That's why this part of the sermon is much shorter. 
Isn't it easy to produce a list of things your wife does wrong, your, your boss does wrong, your children do wrong, your pastor does wrong, the congregation does? I mean, this it just rolls off our list, man. That, yeah, I, I, I'm into that part. <laughs> Rachel got home from school one day and her mother said, Rachel, how was your day? And Rachel said, well, it was fine. I, I did stop on the way home to help a little girl. She was crying because her dolly had broken. And Rachel's mother said, you know, that was really kind of you. Did you help her fix the doll? And Rachel said, no, I stopped to help her cry. Kindness has to also cry with sinners over their sin. Jesus does convict us, but that's not the only thing he does. He also comes with us and cries with us. That's why the Bible tells us so often that he was compassionate. The word means suffers with. In John 11, Jesus wept. The Bible tells us again and again the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He has appointed a great high priest who sympathizes, suffers with, understands In spite of Mr. Clinton's messing up the word, he feels our pain. He really does. Not because he feels it, but because he came and experienced it. That's what Hebrews says. He was in every respect tempted just as we are. He knows what you're going through. And so, biblical kindness does not sit up high from the throne of conviction and cast down spears of condemnation, biblical kindness comes down into the suffering of the world. And it does convict, but it does so with tears of compassion. Conviction first, compassion also, and then third, biblical kindness must coax for a change. Look at verse 2, I mean verse 4 of chapter 2 again. The second part, notice what it says. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's something that coaxes repentance, confession, and change out of us. Stephen Sharnock, who's a famous Puritan pastor, wrote this. What more compelling argument could be made for turning away from sin and back to God than the promise of forgiveness upon confession and change of heart. What more compelling argument could be made to convince you to turn away from your sin and back to God than His constant promise to you of forgiveness if you come. The north wind and the sun were having a dispute over which was the more powerful, and it was agreed by the two, and they declared that the one who could strip the clothes off a wayfaring man would be declared the mightiest. So the north wind (sighs) blew with all of his power. (laughs) But as he blew, the traveler wrapped his cloak tighter around himself. The keener the blast, the tighter he held his coat. 
until at last the north wind gave up all hope of victory and offered the sun a chance to see what he could do. The sun shone with all of his warmth and the, tra- the traveler no sooner felt those kind rays of warmth than he began to take off one garment after another until at last overcome with heat. He undressed and bathed in the stream that lay in his path. Aesop has well done with that fable, an illustration for us of the kindness of God. Surely, I guess, some people are converted when they hear of God's judgment to come, His righteous hatred of sin and His wrath. But most people who run to God run there because they know of His kind forgiveness. God has granted mercy and grace to all who trust in His kindness. It is at the cross where we see the warm sunshine of a compassionate God. So you who are dads this morning, you, those of us who have children... It's true that God requires of us that we teach our children the Word of God and that we convict them of, our, of their sins. But honestly, does the method, fathers, dads, does the method we use to convict our children and teach them the Bible, does that method cause them to button up their coats, to wrap themselves more tightly to fend off our cold bluster rather than give them the same warmth we have received from Jesus. Husbands, surely it's true that God requires you to teach your wife the Word and on that rare occasion when she makes a mistake, point out to her her sin. But does your wife have just cause to resist your cold, harsh, windy rebukes? Wives, have you fallen into nagging and a complaining spirit which would allow your husband to justify wrapping his cloak tightly around him to protect himself from your cold and heartless attacks? Feel again the warmth of kind Sarah of old. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if they don't obey the word, you may win them without saying a word by your conduct when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. What about the friends to whom God has made you witnesses? What about the foes in whose life God has placed you to give testimony? Do they feel the warmth of God's kindness through us? Or are they so chilled by us?
that they purchase one of those bumper stickers that says love is not a family or hate is not a family value. As I was driving to church this morning, eight o'clock or seven thirty, whatever time it was, down Dodge, the guy in front of me had a license plate. It said quit Q U I T H then the number eight. Hating G hating H eight G. Quit hating. Of course, I'd already done this illustration, but the thought, my thought was, wonder who has hurt him. <laughs> wonder if it's one of us who has shown no compassion in our kindness. Conviction? Yes, conviction. <laughs> compassion. And a coaxing. These are the three characteristics of kindness of God in Romans 2.4. May they be heat ours also. And in order that this fruit might ripen in our lives, we need to look at two other things, kind of the opposite. We need to first deny ourselves the complete opposite of kindness. We need to deny ourselves the opposite of kindness, which is an unforgiving heart. I get that from Ephesians 4.32. I don't know if I put that on your outline, but if you uh, are, are the kind that like to flip around in your Bible, Ephesians 4.32, just... I just want to look at this verse and I'll read it. Ephesians 4:32 And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see the connection there between kindness, be kind to one another, and forgiveness? So, random acts of kindness, they're fine. They're great as far as they go. The problem is that they just don't go far enough. <laughs> True kindness forgives. And it makes sense if you think about it. Because let's say that, let's say that I've uh, sinned against uh, Dr. Bear here. So I've sinned against him and... Um, I need to come to him and confess that, right? And repent and ask for his forgiveness. Now, what is going to make me want to come to him? I'm going to come to him if I'm pretty confident that if I confess my sins, he will say, Glenn, I forgive you. You know, I would never have done something that stupid, but, you know, you're an idiot. No, no, you wouldn't say that, would you? No, okay, thank you, brother. Hallelujah. No, he'd say... I forgive you, I understand. I've done the same thing. But if I thought Bear was going to say, no, I don't forgive you. Get out of my face. I'm never going to speak to you again. You'd sit at home stewing and thinking, you know, I don't even know if I want to go talk to him. Because forgiveness might not be granted. Now, God's kindness is what? It's a kindness that promises forgiveness. And so there's a connection between kindness and forgiveness and so the opposite then of kindness would be an unforgiving heart. If you have an unforgiving heart, you cannot be kind. Because a kind person coaxes repentance out of others because it gives forgiveness. And that's why we say Christians do not, we do not confess our sins in order to find forgiveness. We confess our sins because we know there is forgiveness. Faith comes before Repentance, not afterward. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another, 
just as God in Christ forgave you. And then third, I would ask you to be cautious of the counterfeit of kindness. Be cautious of the counterfeit of kindness and the counterfeit, what can look like kindness or what the world might call kindness is any and all avoidance of conviction or confrontation. And I would say that's a, a counterfeit. A, woman, a woman's child fell terribly ill one day. The doctor came to the house and noted that the disease could be easily treated with a certain medicine. And so the doctor left a, a little bottle of the medicine with the mother with very strict instructions. You give this to your daughter four times a day. Well, the first dose was given and the daughter thought she had never tasted anything so bad in her whole life. So she whined and moaned and pleaded and complained and griped and on and on until her mother gave up and said, fine, just don't take the medicine. Well, three days later, the daughter was much, much worse. And so the doctor was again called and he came and, 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 and he was shocked that she had not gotten better. It just didn't make any sense to him because he had seen this disease before. He knew this medicine was virtually 100% effective and yet she wasn't getting any better. So he didn't know what to do. The mother said, oh, I gave her the medicine. I gave it to her four times a day, just like you said. So he said, I don't know what's wrong. But he gave her some other medicine, something even stronger. And so the, doctor, the, uh, the daughter, through that process, had learned her power, <laughs> as kids will do. And so she, she determined not to even take the first dose this time because she knew how bad medicine was. And two days later, she was dead. You see... It appeared to be kind, didn't it? For the mother, oh, I don't want to upset you, daughter. I don't want to make you do something you don't want to do. But in withholding what she disliked, it cost her life. That's why Proverbs 27, 6 says, and I've said it once, but let me remind you, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Kindness applies Medicine which may taste terrible. But the physician's care is to cure the patient, not to please her palate. Right? Kindness applies medicine which may taste terrible. But the physician's care is to cure the patient, not to please the palate. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And maybe some of us today would have to admit that we just are never really kind to anybody because we have only offered a counterfeit that eliminates any conviction. And surely it's true, when you do this, you need to know this. Be certain you understand this part. If you are biblically kind, people will complain bitterly at your harshness and lack of care, which leads you to confrontation. So you must be sure that you know the biblical definition of kindness and do not accept a counterfeit that may shine and sparkle from a distance but is never applied to the wound of sin to bring healing in the souls of men and women. Faithful are the kind wounds of a friend. 
So then finally, let's think for a moment how to cultivate true kindness in our lives. How do we cultivate true kindness? First, I would ask that you strive to know your own need for God's kindness. Strive to know your own need for God's kindness. A Christian lady lived in a place, a little residential area, and one of her neighbors was named Ada. And this this lady and her friends were all very active in their church, but they had kind of, among themselves, gossiped about Ada, and they, they decided they would just never have anything to do with her. They could never bring themselves to minister for, for to Ada because she drank heavily and she yelled at her husband and she was not very pretty. Well, the news came one day that Ada was seriously ill and they still did nothing for they feared being so near to such a sinful person. And in a few days, Ada died. And the church-going lady said this, as they brought the body out on the stretcher, the silent witness of my unkindness haunts me. I cared nothing for Ada's soul. I am a Pharisee. You see, the compassion required by kindness necessitates in our hearts an intimacy with a knowledge of the shared corruption that we all have. If we think of others as more evil than ourselves, then we will never be kind because pride always kills kindness. And so if you find yourself lacking kindness, may I suggest that you spend time striving to know how badly you are in need of the kindness of God. Then second, not only how badly you need it, but second, strive to know God's kindness to you in Jesus Christ. We've already looked at Ephesians 4.32, but let me remind you, be kind to one another. There's the command to put on, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How do you do this, God? Just as God in Christ forgave you. See, the change in my heart, which makes me kind to others, comes through a change in belief when I am convinced that God has been so kind to me. You see that? It comes, all of the promises come by faith. You cannot go out and be kind by gritting up your teeth, squeezing your hands together and saying, I'm going to be kind to Rodney Swan, you better not. It's just not going to come out very God. How do we find a heart of kindness? We find a heart of kindness by believing that we have been shown great kindness. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Meditate often on the forgiveness you have received and the Spirit will make you kind to others. Then third, first strive to know how much you need kindness. Strive to know how much kindness you've received. And then third, strive to be kind to your enemies in heart and in action. Strive to be kind to your enemies. In Luke 6, Jesus teaches an amazing thing. He says this, Love your enemies. Do them good. Lend 
hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Isn't that an amazing sentence? And that verse tells me two critical things. First, it says, I need God to teach me what kind acts are. I need God to teach me what it looks like to be kind to people. God is kind to the unthankful and the evil, the text tells us. What does that look like? Jesus does not tell us here, but in the parallel passage in Matthew 5, Jesus says, here are his examples of God's kindness. He gives rain and sunshine to even those that hate Him and are His sworn enemies. So God is telling us there that just pouring out His common grace on sinners, on sinners it are His acts of kindness. So God is telling us, I, God is showing me I need Him to teach me how to pour out common grace. But even more importantly is something else in that verse. Love your enemies, do good and lend to them, then you'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind. He is kind. I need a kind heart. I need the same heart that Christ has, right? Isn't that what we need? We need the heart of God. We need not just kind acts with an unkind heart. We need a kind heart. And so to develop kindness, let me encourage you or remind you, you probably know this, but let me remind you, do not think to yourself, I wonder if my neighbor is kind and therefore deserves my kindness. Let me assure you, whether your neighbor is your husband or your wife, your children or your spouse or your pastor, or your parents, they are not kind. They're not, they don't deserve all the kindness you're going to give to them. Because, you know how I know that? Because they're just like you, right? <laughs> We're not kind naturally. That's not what comes out naturally. Forgiveness and compassion, that doesn't come out naturally. But God was kind to me while I was unevil, while I was unthankful, while I, with my sins, drove nails into the hands and feet and plunged a spear into the side of the one who is kindness incarnate. Kindness lives and walks among us. And how do we treat kindness? We have a person who lives among us. If you could ever say, now there is the definition of kindness. It would have been Jesus Christ. And we killed Him. Because I do not have this character trait in me. And so, as I strive not to be kind to your friends, not to be kind to those who are already being kind to you, Jesus said what about that? Anybody remember? He said, even a pagan can do that. It just doesn't take any supernatural work from God to be kind to those who are already kind to you. But if you go and decide to be kind to somebody who's mean to you, that's going to put you in that delightful position of dependence on God's grace. There is no way to be kind to your enemies unless the Spirit is working in you. So when you, when you decide, what I find is that when I decide to try to be kind to my family, it doesn't challenge me enough to drive me on my knees to the cross of Christ. And therefore, I'm not kind to my family. But when I strive to be kind to my enemies, I'm humble 
with my unkind heart, which makes me seek God who is kind for the help that I realize I need. And by seeking Him, my kindness comes out to family and foe. When William McKinley ran for president in the uh, late 1800s, there was a newspaper reporter that followed him wherever he went. And you know that was back in the day before cars and airplanes. It was just a um, horse-drawn carriage. And so this, this reporter hooked up with McKinley somewhere in the south in the fall, and it was warm. And they began to travel the United States, and over time the weather began to turn harsh. Now you need to know something about this newspaper reporter. He hated McKinley. He hated McKinley's politics. He hated McKinley's ideas. He hated McKinley's smell. He hated McKinley's clothes. He was just ruthless, always writing bad things about McKinley. And not only writing bad things, but as sometimes newspaper people will do, he exaggerated, he manipulated things. He made McKinley look as bad as possible at every opportunity, misrepresenting him in every way. Well, he hooked up with McKinley in the fall and it was warm. By the time December rolled around in North Dakota, it was cold. And this newspaper reporter had no way of getting any more clothes. You can't just jet back home to Washington or wherever he lived and grab another suitcase because they didn't have jets. <laughs> All he had was a horse. And so one cold night, he sat shivering up in the... Uh, he was allowed to ride in the carriage, but he was up by the driver. And all he had on was a shirt and a, and a pair of pants. And he was freezing. His teeth were chattering. He was cold. McKinley saw the reporter and ordered the driver to stop and invited the reporter, come down, come here. McKinley took off his overcoat and put it on the man. He said, come up here and sit with me in the carriage. And the reporter was shocked at this, and he said, now listen, <laughs> don't think I'm going to change my, my politics because you've done this. But misrepresenting McKinley, he quit painting unfair caricatures, he quit his biases, and though he continued to oppose McKinley, he reported fairly what the man was like. The man who had become the 25th president of the United States. Who, though he did not change the politics, he changed the heart of this reporter through an act of kindness. Confrontation, compassion, and coaxing for change. These are the characteristics of our kind God and they will be true of us as He makes us His kind people. Father God, we thank You for teaching us from Romans chapter 2. I'm overwhelmed this morning as I reflect back on the many unkindnesses which are in my heart and which flow out in word and action so often that we could still read this morning that you are a kind God whose kindness leads to us to repentance. Father God, have mercy on us, not only in forgiving us our, our manifold unkindnesses, but have mercy on us in pouring out your Spirit upon us 
that we might be kind people. And Lord, I ask that you would give each woman, each man, each child here today the courage to seek to be kind to our enemies, even as you are, that we might be brought to that delightful place of dependence on your spirit. And that independence, we might find your gracious favor. For you promise to teach us kindness. We bless you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people say,